it sounds dramatic. Sounds like I should do something more than just say good morning, but here we are. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Who here, if I ask for a show of hands, who here would say they're tired? Just in general, not this moment, but just in general. Who here, when people ask you, how are you doing? Just those casual greetings. How are you doing? Your first answer is either busy or I'm tired. How many? Be honest. There is so much of that going on. And I realized the Lord spoke to me months ago that when people talk to me uh, and they come up and they say, hey, pastor, how are you doing? My first answer for the longest time was, man, I'm busy. And what I realized that by saying that, And by having that be my answer, and it's not really what I felt was on my heart, but the undertone is, I'm too busy to talk to you. I'm too busy with my own stuff to deal with what you've got going on. And I felt like when I would say that and I would answer that way, it was just, I was just subliminally saying just, whatever you've got going on, trust me, I've got this much going on. And I quit doing that. The Lord spoke to me and said, stop doing that. Because my strength is sufficient for you. There is joy in the Lord. And I had to remind myself of that. And then I went last night. Pastor Gabe was in the sequestered in the office at home. And she was up to her eyeballs and things that she had to do. And out of wisdom, I said, you know what? I'm just going to back away from you <laughs> and let you do that. And I'm going to take this opportunity to go visit uh, a good friend of mine. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> I'm going to take this opportunity to go visit a friend of mine, a friend of mine who's, who's got an amazing church. He's an amazing pastor, and I'm going to go just visit him and just, and just be able to just soak in some worship and just soak in the Lord and, and be in that place. And what I found out, I looked at him as one of these pastors who, man, you've, you're on top of the mountain. You've reached this place where you are on top of the mountain, and, and here we are. We're still climbing that mountain down here, um, two different places entirely. But I had the greatest conversation with him after service, and what he said is that he goes, you know, it took us so long to get here, them, them in their place. Uh, they had just built a, a new giant building, which is beautiful, but they just, just built that, and they're in this place. And he goes, I thought... Everybody stuck with me, and everybody said, you know, let's get this done. We're all, this whole body at this church is pulling the same direction. Let's get this thing done. And then once we got it done, I thought we'd be able to just take a step back, take a deep breath, and just enjoy the view from where we are. But what he said to me is, I underestimated the fatigue that people would go through. And that's the word that he used. I underestimated the fatigue of getting to the top of that top of that mountain, and there's always another mountain, right? There's always a higher mountain. But when you get to that place where you feel like, okay, we're there, we can take a deep breath. Sometimes that deep breath becomes just a sense of just like malaise and just fatigue and just like, we're there, I'm kind of done pushing for the next thing. I'm done praying fervently for the next thing. And, and I thought, man, that place where you are and you're finding yourself, where I thought, man, you're there, you're, you're laid back and you got it easy now, we all suffer from that. 
every day we have things that we're pushing for, that we're, that, we're, that we're striving after, that we're praying for. And it feels like sometimes when you reach that place, there's a bit of a letdown. Much like the Israelites after traveling the desert and they finally reach the promised land and they enter the promised land. And it doesn't take very long after all that, all that travel, all that prayer and all that getting to that place that there's a letdown. The reason I say this is because I think we're experiencing a little bit of that here. We prayed for so many months that God would provide. When God provided this building for us, we prayed for so many months. So like, Lord, let this happen in the, in the worldly realm. Let the financing, let all these things come through in the worldly realm. Um, and they came through. And then we get here and we're like, Lord, bring the people, bring the people to come. And we've had so many new, amazing families and people engage with us. But here's what I think is happening a little bit. I think we're experiencing a little bit of that fatigue. I think there are people out there watching me right now. You know who you are watching me from your living room. You've got, maybe you watched the game this morning. Maybe you're still watching the game. Um, and you've got your feet up, and you've got maybe the, the church on this side and the games on this side, um, whatever it is. But you're finding it easier to not engage personally with what's going on here at this body, in this place. And I want to throw out a challenge. Number one, I understand. I understand. When a pastor comes in front of you every single week and goes, man, finances are down, and this is down, and attendance is down, and we need everybody to get excited. Who responds to that? Come on, just be excited. <laughs> if it were that easy, nobody would ever struggle with anything. We would all have abundant energy and would all be just running like crazy after what the Lord has for us. But that's not the way the world works, and I get it. But I want to ask you to just look at yourself between you and the Holy Spirit. Just look at yourself and say, have I experienced that fatigue to where I'm taking a step back? Maybe my giving has tapered off. Maybe I'm not giving at all. Maybe my volunteering, maybe the things that I had on my heart that I would like to do for this body, at this body, at this church, Maybe those things have tapered off. Maybe I've found it's easier to just stay home and just watch from home because I got so much going on. I want to challenge you to seek the Lord in that. Seek the Holy Spirit and ask him. Just be brave enough to ask him, Lord, am I doing that? Am I suffering from the fatigue of just the, the constant urgent? And now that we've reached this place, I've taken a step back. What happens when we take a step back Everything still has to continue to happen. And what we find ourselves is we're in this wonderful blessing of a home and we're barely able to continue the ministry that God has called us to do. I want to ask you, it's just between you and the Lord, but seek the Lord and say, do I need, do I need to re-engage? If I've been engaged and I'm taking a step back, do I need to re-engage? If I haven't at all, is this the time? Do I need to engage? And that thing that God has called me to and this place that God has called me to, do I need to say yes? How can we do this? Let's do this. And that goes for giving as well. A lot of people, um, you know, we did the big ask, hey, we need to build up a down payment to come and buy this property. And so a lot of people went above and beyond. It was such an incredible blessing. And now that we're here, that has trickled off. 
And so I just want to challenge you to re-seek the Lord and find out what he's got for you, how he wants you to engage. And this, and together, we're going to, anybody here, and I was talking to my friend last night, anybody ever done the Manitou Incline? Okay, you do the Manitou Incline, you get to this place, and it's legendary on how difficult it is. But you get to this place where you look up, and you can see what looks like the top, and you're like, I am so close. I am almost there. If I just take five more steps, I'm, oh, there's 500 more steps when you get to that place and you can see. The thing is, in the kingdom of God, it's not over until it's over. It's not over until he calls us all home or until he comes back. And until then, we are called to continue, to continue pushing forward, to continue gaining ground in the kingdom of heaven to continue not only holding this ground, but expanding out into our neighborhood. That's what we're called to do. And we can't do that by just gathering here, listening to a message, shaking a hand and going home. There's so much more that happens to that. And you are part of that. I just want to challenge you in that. So, all right, that's the end of it. I haven't started my official timer yet, so that doesn't count on my sermon time. Now I've hit start, so now it's official. Welcome, everybody, guys. Let's, let's get into the message for today. Um, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we are so close to finishing up. We've been in it for a year now, and this is actually message um, number 51. 51 weeks we have been in the Gospel of Mark, and we're, we're on the home stretch here, but there's still so much that I think we can learn from the Gospel of Mark. Um, I just love... I just love Mark. and The Gospel of Mark has got to be my favorite of all of them because it just emphasizes what a servant Jesus was, how he came to serve in humility. He is, he is all God. In, in our minds, we can't understand this. He's 100% God and deity, but then he's also flesh. And in our minds, we can't like, how does that even work? And we look at the things Jesus does, the miracles that he performs, the, the healings, the, the demonic encounters that he has, and how he can, can deliver these people from their sin. And, and that's all done in the power of the Holy Spirit through him. And the point of all of that is that we have access to that very same power. In fact, if you call yourself a believer in Jesus and you're here right now or out there online, if you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, you have the very same spirit in you that enabled Jesus to do these things. He said, you're going to do greater things than you even saw me do. And we sit here and go, well, somebody else will do that. Somebody else will do that. I'm not really equipped to do that. Jesus never said, hey, as soon as you're fully formed as a believer, as soon as you've gone to seminary and, and you've learned enough and you've reached a certain level of maturity, then you'll be able to start dabbling in some of the things you see me doing. He doesn't say that. He just says, with the Spirit in you, you're going to do greater things. And so we're all called to do those greater things, and that's what the Gospel of Mark is about. So we're down at this point. We're getting near the end. If we do a quick recap of last week, the Sanhedrin had brought Jesus in from the Garden of Gethsemane. They had, they had literally seized him in the middle of the night, taken him before the chief priest. They had had this kind of kangaroo court sort of a trial. They had decided that he was 
worthy of death. And so they decide they're going to bring him uh, before Pilate. They're going to bring him before Pilate so that Pilate will do their dirty work. How many of us are always looking for a way to get someone else to do our dirty work? They decide they're going to do that. And what they really want to do, since they're so holy, they want to keep their hands free from the blood of the Lamb. They don't want to dirty themselves by being a part of this, so they bring him to Pilate. We know Pilate will do this. So from last week, Matthew 27, 24, and now when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, trying to talk them out of crucifying Jesus, actually, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. You yourselves shall see. By the way, um, by the way, I meant to do this at first. I found one of the benefits of having a building that has been multiple churches over its lifetime is that you open boxes and go, I wonder what's in this box. We have tons of Bibles downstairs, and I found them in a box down there. And so if anybody here, anybody here say, hey, I forgot my Bible, I want to bring one, and I forgot it. Anybody want one of these? Okay. We have... I'm going to start bringing them up, and I'm going to start piling them on a table in the back there so that uh, anybody that wants one, I think church is really a good place to bring a Bible. <laughs> I mean, of all the places that you could bring a Bible, I really think this is probably a, a good place. So we're going to start doing that. So if you get here and go, I forgot my Bible, whatever, look for a table in the back. I haven't figured out where, but, but we're going to do it. <clears throat> then, okay, again, from last week, Mark 15, 15. Intent on satisfying the crowd, this crowd that's about to start a riot, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Okay, this is where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Barabbas had been, he was guilty. He had been found, he had been caught, guilty of insurrection, murder, thievery, just about anything he could. Barabbas was a bad dude, and he was caught, he was tried, he was found guilty and sentenced. But he escaped the penalty because it was laid on Jesus Christ instead. That's where we ended up last week. It's just such a small picture of what Jesus is about to do on the cross for all of mankind. This is where we are today, Mark 15, 16 to 21. So if you're in your Bibles, Mark 15, 16 to 21, whatever version you've got, it's a pretty short section. And really, if, if you look at your Bible, depending on the translation, the subtitle is Jesus is Mocked. Okay, that's kind of the Cliff's Notes version, extreme of, of what's happening here. Now, they had been standing outside of Pilate's uh, palace. They'd been standing outside because the, the, um, the Jewish leaders didn't want to dirty themselves. Here they are uh, committing this act. They, they went and seized Jesus, and they brought him in, and they tried him, and, and they did all these things. But now that they're handing him over to Pilate, now's when they decide, oh, do we don't want to dirty ourselves by going inside of Pilate's palace. So it's actually called, the Pilate's palace is called the Praetorium because the, the Praetor 
of, uh, of an area would be the governor. So it's like the governor's palace called the Praetorium. So if your translation uses that instead of governor's palace, that's what that means. But the Jewish leaders refused to go inside. And in the Gospel of John, it says John 18, 28 to 31, then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, you remember me from last week, or if you were here, you remember me teaching that, that Pilate had almost as much distaste for the self-righteous Sanhedrin as he did for uh, even Barabbas and Jesus and anybody else that he was supposed to be trying. He really did not like the self-righteous Jewish leaders of the time. Can you imagine how extra irritating this had to be where not only did they bring Jesus in front of Pilate, but they refused to go inside and made him come out. We're not going inside the palace where you can sit at your bench or do whatever it is in comfort of your own palace. We're going to sit outside because we don't want to get dirty and we're going to make you come out. So that's actually what happened. Also explaining why Jesus is just so irritated at them and wants to kind of poke at them. But all that's done. Um, they had decided they wanted to release Barabbas, so he did that. And he turns Jesus over to be crucified. So the decision made, Jesus is then handed over into the custody of the Roman guards. Okay, Pilate now goes on with whatever he's going to do. Um, the Sanhedrin and everybody, we assume they just go on about their way. Jesus is now in the custody of the Roman guards. He's been sentenced. This is what's going to happen. Mark 15, 16 says, Now the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium. Do we have that scripture? There he is. And they called together the whole Roman cohort. I know they're struggling back there with tech stuff when I'm like, do we have that scripture? And I see him like, uh, I got hands and all these different... It's quite a show back there. You should watch them every now and then. You should put glass up in front and have people just watch you. Okay, let me start over. In Mark 15, 16. Now the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Okay, so they take Jesus, the soldiers take custody of Jesus, take him back inside the palace. And the palace is kind of a combination palace and a fort. It's where, it's where a Roman garrison would be. So there was plenty of room in there. And they decide they're going to take him back in. And before they get on with their day of actually crucifying him and the other criminals that were on the list for today, um, they're going to have a little fun with Jesus. Now, where this says they called together the whole Roman cohort, a cohort is, is a tenth of a Roman legion, okay? That's about 500 soldiers. A cohort is. Okay, so a legion's about 5,000, a full legion. Um, a cohort, about 500 soldiers. So Jesus is turned over into the custody of these. There's four soldiers, but then they call together their friends. So he's surrounded, 500 jeering, poking, prodding, mocking soldiers that Jesus is surrounded by in the middle of the praetorium. It's a terrible scene, if you think about it, where everybody's poking at him and prodding him and, and jeering. He's bound, he's been sentenced, he's been flogged already, and he's surrounded by these soldiers. Now, here's an interesting thing. The, the Hebrews, 
had anybody who wasn't a Hebrew. We call them Gentiles, but anybody who's not a, a Hebrew, they had this slang term for them, and they would just call them dogs. Okay, if you weren't a Hebrew, you were a dog. And that was a common thing. So here's Jesus in this, inside the praetorium, surrounded by 500 dogs. Now think about that. When I read this scripture from David, David wrote this in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, a thousand years before David wrote this. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's a thousand years before this happened. And here Jesus finds himself now surrounded by this band of dogs that, that David had prophesied back then. Mark fifteen seventeen, And they dressed him in purple, and after twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on him. We've all seen the picture of Jesus with the, with the crown of thorns on him, right? Now, Mark's gospel says they dressed him in purple. If, you've, if you read Matthew's parallel account, it says they dressed him in scarlet, right? Is that an error? Is that a different, a different thing that's happening? On? Is it purple? Is it scarlet? Well, here's, here's what that boils down to if, if you look at it, and I'm just going to do this so we don't have confusion here. Back in those days... Things were made of dyes, that is, for, cloth, for clothing, would be made out of seashells, out of plants, berries, all kinds of different things they would put together to make dye. So when you say purple or scarlet, it's actually the same word in the, in the Greek here, but it means different shades. So it could be anywhere from, from a scarlet red, a deep scarlet red, into a royal purple. Now, we typically think that it's probably more scarlet because, first of all, these soldiers are not going to have a king's royal red, uh, purple robe laying around just to randomly put on Jesus. What they would have is a whole bunch of their dress cloaks that they did when they did dress parades and things like that. They would put these on, and they were a deep, deep, deep crimson red. That's what color they were. So chances are that's what they're putting on Jesus now. Now, it's not really important for theology, but it's something I like to point out when, when scriptures kind of, sometimes it looks like they maybe disagree on the way they see things. Now, this crown of thorns continues this mockery and then also just amplifies the torture and the torment that's going on with Jesus. This crown of thorns probably is, is woven from, it's called the Zisiphus Spina Christi. Now they didn't, that means Christ, spines of Christ, which they probably didn't call it back then, but it's still around now. And it grew, this plant grew in abundance along the Jordan River and in different places around all of Palestine. So it was very, very common. It had a lot of purposes. Let me show you a picture. The first one, this is a close-up of one of the branches it's in full bloom, it's got flowers, it's got leaves, it's bearing fruit. So they would use this fruit for dyes, they would use it for animal feed, they'd strip the leaves off and they'd feed those to animals, uh, even made some medicines out of it. It was a fairly utilitarian kind of a plant. Now, let me show you what it looks like when you strip the leaves back. That's what the spines look like. And 
This is what they used. This was probably around for a multitude of reasons. This is what they used to weave a, a crown for Christ. Now, the reason I bring this up is because going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we see the origin of plants that have spines and thorns and thistles. It's all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and God was telling them the consequences for their disobedience, the consequences for their sin. And if you remember, Genesis 3.18 says, Both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, after they're talking about the toil of the ground. It's very fitting that the result of God's curse against sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden is what they use to put the thorn of crowns, uh, the crown of thorns on to Jesus. It's kind of a symmetry there. The result of mankind's sin was the thorns to begin with, and then Jesus is crowned with that symbol of the sin of mankind. Mark 15, 18, and they began saluting him. It's after they've got the robe on him. Now remember, he's, he's bound. He's tied up. They start messing with him. They put the robe on him. They put the crown on him. And they begin saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews. Remember, this is what Pilate started saying, calling him King of the Jews as a mockery, uh, mostly poking at the Jews. So this is what they're doing. They're, marking, they're mocking the Jews as well as Jesus. Now, if we look in another, again, a parallel gospel, John 19, the chief priests had already declared, they had already said to Pilate, we have no king except Caesar. So by calling him continually king of the Jews, king of the Jews, they use that term over and over again. And they're just mocking the Jewish leadership. Mark 15, 19, and they repeatedly beat his head with a reed and spit on him. And kneeling, they bowed down before him. I'd always read that they, they um, beat his head with a reed. I'm always picturing the reeds that grow along the water, the side of the water, like in Genesis when Moses is floating down the, the, the river into the reeds and something soft. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound super painful. That word actually, reed, uh, it translates into a different word than the plant reed we're thinking of. It's a club. It's, a me- it's actually a measuring stick that they used, and they would have had those around. So that reed, what we read as a, what we read as a reed, is actually a club, and they're beating Jesus with it. They give it to him um, as a scepter. You know, they give it to him to hold on to. So now you've got a crown, you've got a robe, you've got a scepter, just part of the mocking. Then they take it from him. And they beat him with it. Where it says they bowed down before him, the word in Greek translates as proskuneo. And it means to do reverence to, literally to kiss the ground. So they are full on mocking. They're down on their knees and they're bending and they're kissing the ground. They're doing all these things that you would only do for a true king or for Caesar. And they're doing this. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. These guards, see, they don't see Jesus as anything special. They're just doing their job. They don't see him and go, oh, here's the king of the Jews. This is a historic moment. Let's fulfill our place in history. They don't see it as any of that. Jesus is nothing to them. 
He's not anything. They're just mocking him, and they're having some fun. They're just, he's just a reason for them to have a little cruel fun at his expense. Now, I'm not letting them off the hook. Okay, Roman guards, they were an evil lot of people. Okay, they did terrible things, unspeakable things, things that we couldn't even imagine were commonplace for these guys, and they did it. But for them, it wasn't anything spiritual. It wasn't, here's the so-called Messiah, let's end that. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a job. And they were just having a little fun at their job. So I have a question for you guys. Think about this. You out there online, think about this question. What's worse? What is worse? Those people, and I'm talking about back here, the Roman soldiers, I'm talking about those people today who don't know Jesus, who don't see him as anything special, who maybe don't believe in him, and they mock him. What's worse, that or those who do know who Jesus is and mock him anyway? Now, before you answer that question, we have to probably define what mocking means. What's it mean to mock somebody? Make fun of, poke at, right? But what do you typically do? You, you pick out an attribute, something that they have. You're, you're a, a tough leader, or you've got a big nose, or, you've got, or you're tall, or, or you speak funny, whatever it is. You pull out some sort of an attribute, and that's what you make fun of, right? You exaggerate it. So if we think about that, maybe it's just not giving, maybe mockery is just not giving the reverence to something that demands it. Something or someone who we should be giving our respect and our reverence to, and we don't. So in that case, go back to the question, what's worse, those who don't see Jesus as anything real or special, and they mock him? Or those of us who should know better and don't submit our lives to him? We don't show Jesus the reverence and the respect that he is due. We call him Lord, we say the words, but we don't live our life like that. Which one's worse? I'm not here to condemn anybody, but I want you to think about it because it's so easy to point at non-believers and say, oh, those people, they're just so dull. They're just so blind. It's so easy to do that and not look at ourselves and the ways that we mock Jesus with the things that we put above him in importance. All right. The diversion over, the guards, they're their diversion, their playing around is over, but they do have a job to do, and they are going to get called out at some point if they don't get on with their job. Mark fifteen twenty. and after they had mocked him, they took the purple cloak off, put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, Mark's gospel is very, it doesn't expand on this detail a lot. A lot of the other gospels do. We're going to go into that, but not so much today. But we do know this, the custom for the condemned, if you were condemned to be crucified, the custom was you would carry your own crossbeam. We've all seen pictures of Jesus carrying the entire cross, both the vertical and the horizontal pieces, out to Golgotha. 
But in reality, what probably happened, uh, which was the custom of that day, and again, remember, Jesus, Jesus wasn't anything special to them at this point. He was just another criminal that they were crucifying. So the criminal, the condemned, would carry the, their own crossbeam. They would give them the crossbeam. The vertical piece, bless you, the vertical piece would already be in the ground. And when they got the condemned out there, they would nail you to it, and then they would hoist it up on the crossbeam. That's typically how they did it. So they take Jesus out. He's carrying this crossbeam and weakened from the beating, from the blood loss, um, probably from lack of sleep and just all the fatigue of the emotion and everything that's going on, Jesus in his flesh falters. And when he does, Mark 15, 21, they compelled a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene. Mark, parenthetically, says the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. That idea of being compelled, by the way, compelled is a, it's a law. It's a law of the land. A Roman soldier could compel you as a, as a citizen to do their bidding. They could say, they could come by, and the way they did it is that they would take either their sword or their spear and they would just tap you on the shoulder with it. And when a Roman soldier did that to you, it was you were being compelled and you were legally then bound to, if there was a load to carry, if there was something they wanted you to do, you had to do it. Which is why Jesus says, if they ask you to carry a mile, to go a mile, I want you to go too. That's that idea of being compelled. You had to do it up to a mile. So they could just simply by, by Roman law say, you, I want you to carry this all the way up to a mile. And Simon had no, he couldn't say anything about it. Now, poor Simon, Simon is from this area called Cyrene, which today it's in Libya, northern Africa. He was probably in town coming there for Passover, for the Passover celebration. So he had probably traveled, maybe walked, maybe rode, um, but all the way from there. And here he is coming into town for the Passover celebration, and he bumps into this crowd coming the other way, and all of a sudden finds himself, we need you to carry this. And he doesn't have a choice. He grabs it, and he turns around, and he carries it. Um, Amazing story and amazing teaching for another day. We won't go into that too much. But this begins at this point. Um, a couple years ago, I did a, a Christmas um, series on the Via Dolorosa, okay, the Way of Sorrows. And we talked about the different stops along the way. If you go to Israel now, you can see and you can walk in the places, the path, the very path that Jesus took during this time. Um, we actually, let me show you a picture. If you go there now, this is a sign that's on the wall of, uh, of this, in the city of Jerusalem. And that, that little V, obviously, that's put there later. But the V is a five. It's a Roman five. And that means it's stop number five on the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa, again, literally means sorrowful way. But you see these here, and these are the stops along the way where these significant things in the travel of Jesus from Pilate's Uh, palace from the praetorium all the way out to Golgotha. If you get a chance, go there, and you'll see these all over. And obviously, they all have different numbers, and you can see the different things that happen. This 
stop five. This is the, the point and the place. And you can Google it, and you'll see a bigger picture of the area where Jesus um, hands over his cross to Simon. And Simon takes it. All right, you can take that down. All right, so how do we tie? That's all it, all the scripture in this section here for today. So what kind of sense do we make of that? There's a lot going on. And after praying about it, it really didn't take long. The Lord spoke to me immediately and said, this is what this section is about. And there's so much good teaching that can go on there. But what I want to share with you is the idea of humility. In the face of accusation, torture, mockery, Jesus carries himself with dignity. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't struggle. He doesn't argue his case. And I want to point out that that kind of dignity in the face of accusation is only possible. It is only possible if you know whose job it is to fight your battles. I want you to hear me in this. If you think that it's your job to stand up for yourself, I've been done wrong too. Somebody has said something about me. It's up to me to right this wrong. How many of us can do that with dignity? It's difficult. You can try, but as soon as you start getting some pushback, it becomes very, very difficult to remain composed. If we understand that it's not our job to fight our battles, it's not our job to advocate for ourselves. Jesus is the advocate. Jesus will fight our battles. Then you can have dignity in the face of that kind of attack, that kind of persecution, that kind of a fight. Going all the way back to Exodus, Exodus 14, 14. I love this scripture. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. How many of us have spoke up for ourselves, trying to advocate for ourselves only to make the hole deeper? Anybody? I hear chuckles. That's how it works for me. Without fail, when I try to defend myself, okay, who's Todd, you back there? Okay, I'm going to tell you guys, be transparent. I play hockey. Todd's on my hockey team. He can attest to this. Unfortunately, I spend a little time in the penalty box from now and then. Time to time. Time to time. And it's never my fault. Never. But the times I've really gotten in trouble is when I try to fight for myself. I try to advocate for myself. I didn't do it. That wasn't me. He fell down in front of me. It's his fault for being where my stick was coming through. I didn't mean to push him into the boards. He was just in my way. Complete lack of dignity. We chuckle, but it's true. There is no dignity in that moment. And in that moment, when I go in the penalty box and I shut the door and I sit down and I look at my teammates out there taking the brunt of this penalty kill because I have made them now down a man, there's no dignity in that moment. I sit there and I'm ashamed that I've not only hurt my team, but I haven't glorified God in what I've done. Translate that or transpose that with the Lord will fight for you while you keep silence. If there's justice to be had, the Lord will have it. The Lord will have justice. 
We only lose dignity when we fight for ourselves. This is what Jesus is doing. Notice how the guards are treating Jesus with this casual brutality because he's not fighting back. Chances are if this was Barabbas among them, they probably wouldn't have taken, you know, let's put a crown on him, let's put the robe on him, let's do all these things because Barabbas could lash out and hurt them. But here they see Jesus being meek, not fighting back. And that kind of meekness invites mockery. Hear me. If you're being mocked because of your failure, in the worldly sense, to stand up for yourself, meekness invites mockery. Because the world sees that as weakness. Normal is to stand up and be heard. Normal is to fight for your rights. Guarantee somebody out there just said, to party. (laughs) Be honest, okay? I knew it. I don't want to make light of that, though. Normal is to stand up and be heard. Normal in this society is to stand up for your rights. Jesus, during the Beatitudes, you can go back and read Matthew 5. During the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does meek mean? I've said it before. The word meek loosely translates as power under control. But more specifically, the word meek in, that, in the Beatitudes, it's the Greek word praus. And praus means exercising God's strength under his control. God gives you the strength, and the Holy Spirit controls it in you. That's what meekness is. That's what meekness is. It's demonstrating that power without being harsh, demonstrating that power that the Holy Spirit has put inside you without being pushy, without being harsh, without being mean, without being um, prideful. And it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. Has anybody here, you can raise your hand or you can just think about it, have you ever been mocked for your beliefs in Jesus Christ? Have you ever been mocked for that? Now, mocking can come from any sort. You can't turn on the television and watch any television show or movie without at some point somebody takes a dig at believers of Jesus. It happens all the time. When that happens, okay, not on the television show, some of us scream back at the TV. Anybody else scream back at the TV? I'm talking about in your face. Somebody's in your face mocking you for your belief of Jesus. Was it hard not to fight back? In your flesh, was it hard not to fight back? In that moment, did you show meekness? God's power under his control. And that confidence that can only come, that dignity that can only come from knowing whose job it is to fight your battles. Or did you show weakness? Weakness, in a worldly sense, is standing there with your mouth shut and letting the Lord fight your battles. But weakness for a Christian means you're going to step up in your flesh and you're going to not show the dignity that Jesus showed here. The secular world sees meekness as a weakness to be exploited. A normal person would fight back. 
Anybody ever heard that? A normal person would fight back. Well, church, I want to tell you that as followers of Jesus Christ, guess what we're not called to be? Normal. We are called to be anything but normal. Scripture tells us all the time, John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, there are those who take that a step further and say, I need to do everything in my life to make people hate me so that I can be shown as a follower of Jesus. We're not called to do that either. But we are warned that the world will not see us as one of their own. If you're doing it right, the world will see you as different. If you are being a disciple of Jesus Christ and you're, and you're doing it the way Jesus teaches, the people at your school, the people at your job site, the people that you come across every day are going to know that you're different. It's not being hateful. It's not being closed-minded. It's not being judgmental. But you will be different. And people should see that. And if that's not happening in your life, then maybe we're just a little too normal. Not called to be normal. If being a follower of Jesus makes you a target of that hatred or that persecution somehow, we don't need to fear the consequences. Well, if I don't stand up for myself, who will? Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon formed against you will succeed, and you will condemn every tongue that accuses you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. We don't need to fear. We don't need to fear who's going to fight our battles. We can face accusation. We can face trial. We can face torture. We can face anything through the power of Jesus Christ in us, and we can face it with the dignity that he modeled for us. That's what this is about. Jesus Christ is our advocate against all accusations. He's our redeemer against the penalty for our sins. He's our fortress, our rock, our savior. You want the crown of glory that comes from being seen as righteous? Where does that come from? 1 Peter 5, 4. When the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus wore the crown of thorns that we deserved so that we could get the glory that he deserved. Let's pray. Father God, you are, you are our rock, our savior, our redeemer, our fortress, Lord, you are all these things. And Father, I repent of those times where in my flesh I have stood up to fight when what I should have done is keep silence. I repent of those times where I shouted somebody down, where I posted something, a comment, where in some way advocating for myself and my position and my misguided attempt to stand up for you, Lord, what I did is dishonor you. Lord, I repent of those times and I just ask that the next time I am faced with that opportunity to either stand up and fight or to be silent, 
and let you fight the battle. Lord, just remind me of your promise that you will fight our battles and that we only need to keep silent. We only need to listen. We only need to trust in you, our advocate, our redeemer. Lord, help me to glorify you in everything that I do. Help me to never mock you by action or by word. Help me to see what you have done for me and to praise that and to be thankful for that every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're going to take communion now, and one of the things that we can do, unfortunately, to mock Jesus is to take communion without an understanding in your heart of what it means. To take communion thinking, well, it's just something we do so that I can leave and catch the end of the game. Giving proper reverence, giving proper understanding to what the sacrament of communion means. It means you're saying yes to what Jesus did for you. You are accepting what he did for you and you're saying, I will, to the best in my failed human ability, I will take that and I will live like someone who has been saved. I will live my life like someone who has been redeemed. Scripture never tells us what happens to Barabbas after this moment. I would like to think that he knows that he escaped death because of Jesus, turns over a new leaf, and goes on to do something amazing. We don't know that. But we do know what we can do. If we live our lives like someone who has been freed from the clutches of death, freed from the penalty that we deserve for our sin, if we live our lives in that kind of gratefulness, then we will glorify him in what we do. So if that's where, we, where you are, we invite you to come up and take communion. We'll have two stations. We'll have this one over here and this one over on this side. Jim and Sandy White will be over there. Um, and there's wine up there. And what we do here is you just dip the wine or the bread, uh, uh, you dip the bread in the wine. And then over here, if you don't want wine, if you want to do it, either serve yourself or without the alcohol and the wine, we have grape juice over at the self-serve stations. You're welcome to do that. But let's do this with full understanding and full reverence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it does not always mean to stand up and fight. Sometimes it means let him fight our battles. Thank you, guys.